0: What makes us different? And really what value proposition is, is trying to articulate what makes you different in the space of your competitors that you can go out there and say, this is why we are different. Welcome to the Inbound Buzz
1: podcast, your weekly jolt of all things digital and inbound marketing brought to you by redpandas.com.au. Now for your host and co-founder of Red Pandas, Moby Sadiq. Welcome to Inbound Buzz, I'm your host Moby Sadiq, wishing you very, very well. You're listening to episode number 48, and this week I've got a very special expert interview for you to sink your brain neurons into. Now, building a strong brand in an age of noise and increasing commoditization is now more important than ever. Forget what you think you know about building a strong brand and value proposition, Ladies and gentlemen, I'm proud to bring you not only an international brand and brand culture expert, she also happens to be a personal mentor of mine. In this interview, Manel shares how to build a compelling value proposition. She talks about brand, the role of marketing today, as well as some very good personal brand building advice. So, without further ado, let's learn a thing or two from Manel Murhi. My guest today, in my mind, is the foremost authority when it comes to brand and value proposition development. It is her job to help big brands define who they are to the marketplace, as well as develop internal, facing value propositions that bridge the consumer and internal culture gap to build an identity the workforce can rally behind. She also gave me my first start in marketing and has possibly been the most instrumental person in my career. A big, warm welcome, Manel Mohi.
0: I'm actually really humbled by that, maybe that's a quite a humbling introduction, but thank you.
1: Thanks for being here, Minil. Thank you. Minok, why don't you give everyone a quick background of who you are and what you do?
0: Okay, well, um, God, where do I start? It's it's kind of funny talking to you after knowing you for so many years and trying to give a background. I know
1: it, but yeah, for everyone else.
0: <laughs> um, Alright, so I guess I've worked in the in the field of marketing and had a real strong passion for marketing for the last 15 years. Um, funnily enough, I actually studied optometry and realised very quickly that uh, science and and that field wasn't for me. So from there, I decided to jump ship and and start studying marketing, and then I really fell in love with it. So I, you know, I went back and did my strategic um, marketing degree, and I got my bat. So I did my bachelor's and I did my masters, and then I went on to work for some large Organisations in the space of refreshing uh, their brand, in the space of understanding their consumers, and in the space of really building the identity of a brand and, and what that can look like um, going out to market. So uh, it's been it's been a very exciting 15 years, and and I wouldn't I wouldn't replace my roles or my career path if I was given a chance to. To be honest.
1: Awesome. Awesome. In an era where technology rules, right, digital is the biggest thing. Everyone wants to talk about digital. Is brand becoming obsolete or is it more important than ever?
0: So, you know, um, I guess being asked that question, especially in today's day and age and today's consumer landscape is it's such an important one to ask and such an important one for organisations and brands to to, um, consider and just spend that moment in time actually thinking about how does their brand live in this new digital ecosystem and my answer to you is it is so much more important, more important now than ever before for brands to be considering their life considering um, uh, what they're built around and how they're going to market and influencing consumers and And that's for a number of reasons and that's because today consumers are so much more, um, they've got higher expectations and they're so much more educated around brands. And that's because uh, the, the technological platforms available and the digital landscapes available allows the consumer to very easily be able to research and understand and look at different options. So if a brand is not living in the mind of a consumer as a strong option and one that's building a level of trust and a relationship of trust with them, it's very easy for consumers to jump to another competitor. So. More today than ever before do brands need to be building that relationship of trust because consumers are much more less merciful. There is no more mercy with consumers. In the past where you only had your operational footprint or there was tangible relationships in terms of branches and um, customers and staff, uh, customers were actually much more merciful because they understood the human error. Whereas in today's day and age where they can consume brands and they can consume products and they can transact online, there isn't a personal relationship to allow for a fabric of mercy. So if anything, building um, a strong customer experience or a strong customer satisfaction ethos online and building that trust and that credibility online and building a strong brand online is actually much more important than it used to be in the past, in my opinion.
1: Do you think part of that importance has been due to the fact that digital has distracted a lot of people, so it's like, oh wow, digital, digital, but the the real underpinnings of what a brand is, do you think that has
0: affected the importance of branding? I I think digital has not only distracted people, I think digital has changed socially how our consumers behave and respond. So funnily enough, over the years, and this has been a very, very strong interest topic for me, over the years, what digital has done, especially in the in the field of social platforms, is it has changed how people in general, so human beings, and if we all can look at our consumers as just human beings, It's changed how human beings communicate. It's changed how human beings relate to other people, to other human beings and to brands. And it's changed how people consume and search and influence their own behaviors and influence their own decision-making frameworks through those platforms. So in the past, perhaps their option for making educated choices about the brands that they're going to work with or buy from has been maybe um, conversations with other friends. Now. Those conversations aren't required. They're actually having online conversations that are available to them 24 hours a day. They, they go online, they research. The first thing they do, nobody is looking and reading through magazines anymore to try and form an opinion. People are looking down on their phone and consuming media 24 hours a day whenever they need it. So if there's a question in their mind or they're looking for an option in terms of buying, they get on their phone and all of a sudden they're having a conversation with the Googles of the world, they're having a conversation with other people's different opinions, people that they don't know, but that are giving star ratings, that are leaving comments, whether they be good or bad. So those that, that formation of opinion and decision making that we all try as marketers to get into, that's happening in an interactive online technologi- technological platform that we can't touch anymore. So brands need to make sure that they're amongst that conversation and they're influencing people's decision-making um, a framework or the, the, the decisions that they're making through being present in the digital landscape.
1: Awesome, awesome, cool. So like a lot of things in that industry, and I'm, and I'm talking about the digital marketing slash marketing industry, mm-hmm. there are a lot of terms that are loosely thrown around, right? So one thing can mean so many different things. And I want to ask you about value proposition a little bit later, but firstly, what is a brand strategy and how is this different to brand attributes? Because I think people often confuse the two.
0: Yeah, I think they do. I think what people struggle to see is that whilst brand attributes and brand strategy are not separate to one another, they're actually not, brand attributes are merely a component of the brand strategy. So it's just a component of it. So it's like saying, if I can give um, an analogy, it's like looking at a vehicle. The vehicle cannot operate without without its wheels and a brand strategy cannot function or be healthy without defining the brand attributes. So if the brand strategy is talking about what position do you want to own in the mind of your customers, then after you define that position, and let's say it's a position around trust, or let's say it's a position around being a friendly, jovial brand. You want to feel friendly and you want to feel jovial to your customer segment then the brand attributes you would then define going a level down. So yeah, it would be the playfulness, it would be the reliability. It could be things like um, colour and tone that actually adds to that position of jovial or friendly. So you're actually building the characteristics. So if I was to use another example, strong marketers, strong brand marketers will always consider if their brand was a person, what would they look like? What would they do? What would they sound like? And That's the strategy? That forms part of the strategy because your strategy, when defining the strategy, you're basically going through a step-by-step process but always fundamentally you're looking at your customer segments first and foremost and you're considering how can I not own necessarily share of mind because a good brand strategy will give you share of mind. It's how can I position my brand to capture share of heart? So how can i capture the heart of this consumer do i need to be likable you know what are my, what are other brands in this landscape how do they feel and then what how am i going to have my point of difference and once you're very clear in your mind as to what position you want to own in a customer's heart and mind you can then start to form what are the traits that your brand need to have to achieve that position
1: do you have an example
0: Yeah, I do have an example. If you consider for yourself, actually, and and I hate to mention Apple because all marketers use Apple as an example. However, Apple is one of the best brand stories you'll ever ever hear out there to, I guess, use the, the talkings or the teachings of Simon Sinek when he looks at Apple versus the likes of Sony or Samsung or LG or what have you, all those other kind of brands in that technology space. And Apple went out there and if they were to just turn around and think we're selling computers, then their functions of their computer versus the function of a computer that potentially LG could launch or Panasonic could launch, on the table, their functions are actually quite similar. They all switch on, they all use uh, some sort of uh, word processing platform, you know, they've all got the, the smarts behind them to actually deliver what a computer needs to do. However, Apple went out and actually said, we want to target people that think differently and they wanted to own that. They wanted to own innovation. They wanted to own and inspire those people that wanted to think differently and were excited about innovation and thinking differently. And so they understood their why. And once they where they actually explored, well, why do we do business? And it was about innovation and cutting edge and pushing the, ch- the, the status quo. They then decided to form all their brand attributes and their brand stories around capturing that, that point in a customer's heart and mind. Awesome. So all the innovators and all the people that actually aspired to being different and being... Um, challenging the status quo and being forward-thinking, all of a sudden had a reason to that they connected with Apple. And mostly, and the best brand strategies, are the ones that they can actually connect and resonate with an emotional reason with their customer.
1: Sure, that underpinning why. And Absolutely. then you work on the attributes. Absolutely. Awesome. Okay. So possibly my favorite topic and one that so many years ago, if people know my history Obviously, I worked with you a long time ago, and one of the biggest things I learned from you was value proposition, right? And this is another thing that people throw, value proposition, obviously, as we were talking about, is not a logo. It's not a strap line. What is a value proposition? And I know you you would probably do a day workshop on this, but if you were to kind of succinctly say how a brand would define a value proposition, what would you say?
0: I'd say that a lot of brands throw the term around value proposition, but aren't Uh, aren't really distilling their own internal value proposition for their brand um, in a very clear way. And so if I can just hack how to define or develop a value proposition um, in 10 seconds or in 30 seconds, I would say um, marketing teams sometimes try and to and to their credit, they try, but they, they try to define their value proposition internally. So they bring a team of internal people from different parts of the business and they say, well, what makes us different? And really what value proposition is, is trying to articulate what makes you different in the space of your competitors that you can go out there and say, this is why we are different. And the, And although that's a good starting point for some brands, the, the difference between just defining your core competencies and calling that a value proposition versus defining a very solid, meaningful value proposition is always, and sometimes, it's my, sometimes people can see this, consider this as marketing 101, but it's actually always starting with your customer. So what does your customer value and what can I propose as a brand to match that value? So if I look at my customer segment and I know that what drives them to purchase a particular product is certain A, B and C. And that's actually starting with the customer first and, f- and doing very healthy research to understand what's driving their decision process to try and purchase a brand. And then once you map that out, then you can match back your, co- your core competencies or what differentiates you to what the customer actually is driven by. Mm. And then that's how you form a healthy value proposition, because you say, this is the value that we can propose to you, customer A, because you're driven by this. You need this, there is a need for you, you're driven, your thinking is actually coming from this internal need, and this is the value that we can provide to cater to that need, and that is what a healthy value proposition is.
1: As opposed to, what I'm guessing you see with a lot of brands is they start with their core competencies first, so they get into a room like we're in now, and why are we different, as opposed to finding out what the customer actually wants.
0: Correct, so, they'll, so so brands will get into a room and actually define that this is what we're strong at, what they believe they're strong at, and it's introspective. Whereas, who cares? And that's, I guess, the rule of defining a strong value proposition, is ask yourself again, well, why does that matter to a, to a customer? And if there's one thing that I could um, tell a lot of young marketers that are growing up, trying to apply their thinking to their work is just pause for a moment and ask yourself, well, why? And put yourself in the customer's shoes and run that lens over it. But why is that important to the customer? And how will it make a difference in their world?
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: very quickly, you look at the core strengths that you've written down with this internal lens, and you'll start to see it doesn't stand up to the test because you might have 10 of these core strengths, but so does your competitor. But only one stands out. So really, your value proposition, or your, or, or what's really core differentiating for you, is that one, that is, going back and fulfilling a customer's needs, and that is sustainable and it cannot be competed with. And that's the the model or the formula, mm. if you like, in a very quick nutshell that that marketer should follow.
1: Okay. So to cap it off, because I know a lot of people would be thinking, okay, cool. How do I actually do this? So the first part. Um, actually finding out what your customers want. Correct. Understand, matching that against your strengths. And I like what you said, like it could be just one thing. It could be one core cool thing, not a hodgepodge of 10 different things.
0: Yeah, a lot, lots, it's it's funny. It's funny and it's a great way that you've picked up on that. Lots of brands or market, marketers seem to feel like there needs to be a shopping list. But there doesn't necessarily need to be a shopping list. There needs to be one or two. And if you find your one or two, you're doing way better than lots of other brands and marketers out
1: there. And then the the strap line or the, the motto or the logo can stem from that.
0: Absolutely. And then your messaging yeah. stems from that. And so a lot of people um, try and, if you like, uh, dodge that process and try and get straight into messaging. But for messaging to be meaningful as a brand, you really need to understand what is your core value proposition that you're going out with, that core competency that you want to own and you want to protect and you want to maintain and then f- have your messaging flow from there.
1: And then where does that value proposition live? Because I'm guessing it's not a document you're leaving your, your, on your desktop for the rest of your life. But how does it live? Is it on the website? Is it
0: Good point. videos? Good point. Good point. And, and a lot of people, a lot of marketers, again, go through the process of defining a value proposition and then leave it to eat dust in their marketing drawer. But that's not the case. So if you've defined that as your value proposition and now you're very clear as to who your customers are and what they value and what you offer them, to fulfill that value, that needs to become a living, breathing type of document or living, breathing type of information that is available throughout your entire organization. So all your people, all your functional departments um, should basically come to life with this kind of information because marketing who are sitting in a marketing department, they're not the ones that are actually in touch with customers every day. What are the moving parts of your business that are touching customers every day? They need to breathe life to your value proposition. They need to come to life. So that means, that could mean training, that could mean um, you're looking at different elements of your business, whether it be your branches, your customer service stuff, what have you, that are actually speaking that same language and modeled around what you've learned in your value proposition.
1: Awesome, awesome, I like that, I love that. Okay, let's talk about personas, which is obviously very much linked to that, and you're probably, a really good person to talk to because I know this is an area that you've been working on quite a lot. You know, you lead a fairly large marketing department at Kennards Hire, which you know, for those who don't know, or are international, it's an equipment hire company spanning Australia and NZ. So the question is, and I like what you guys have done at Kennard's because you haven't just defined it and again got a PowerPoint and shoved it somewhere, right? You've actually like made it live and breathe. So you've wholeheartedly embraced it, which is actually quite bizarre, you know, in, in larger organisations. How instrumental have personas been to the Kenneth Hire
0: business? I think personas have been a game changer for the Kenneth Hire business. And I, my personal opinion is personas can be a game changer to any organisation that take branding and market strategy seriously. And I, and, and let me explain why. Because... I go back to the example or the comment I made earlier that if your brand was a person, because, and why that's important for any organisation and all organisations when they're thinking about their brand should always start with, if my brand was a person, what would it look like, what would it sound like, where would it live, how would it consume, how would it make decisions about purchasing? So when you're looking at your customer segments and the old school way of marketing and the, and what we're all taught in uni is, look at who your customer segment is. But what what does that mean? If we can group them into a persona, what personas then do for you is they give a physical embodiment of that segment. So you've got a group of people. So if you don't mind, I'll use Kenaz as an example. So we have a group of people and we know that they're DIY. They're the do-it-yourselvers. But what motivates these people? What kind of media do they consume? How do they make their decisions? Are they influenced by their friends? What kind of messaging would be appropriate to them if 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 the, the particular DIY person was just a person sitting in front of me, what kind of conversation would I have with them? How can I sell them what Ken tire is is going out to market with by touching on their needs? And when you paint the customer segment in a visual person and define those kind of things, then what happens is you can take a step, away, a step away and look at that persona and say, I know who I'm talking to. It's much easier then for marketing teams to actually build their material because they have a physical embodiment of the customer segment mm. in front of them. They know what that looks like. They know what it sounds like. They know what it feels like. And it's like they're communicating with a person, which is essentially what marketers are doing. They're communicating with a person, just a group of them. And that's what, what the importance of personas is. So what has done, and
1: feel free to use Kennard's examples, what has that done specifically for the Kennard's business and the way you guys operate and operations and everything?
0: Well, what, what that has done for us is it made us truly understand what each customer segment, as a persona, what they require from Kennard. So immediately we looked at our operations, so how our branches actually function and work, um, how they're laid out how our customer service team actually handle inquiries and phone inquiries. And it made us identify the gaps that we need to build on to actually talk to that persona. So we realised that the persona, the DIY persona, which is one example, was driven by mastery. They want to feel like they've mastered their home improvement job. So all of a sudden, that made us look at our customer service staff and think, what can we equip our customer service staff with that can enable a customer, a DIY customer, to feel mastery. Mm. And all of a sudden, you know, it was clear as day to us that our customer service staff need to be trained in much more depth of how to actually do a DIY project, what are the kind of challenges a DIYer might experience, and be able to talk to them, talk to the customer in that way, rather than just say, yes, we have a tool, here it is, check it out, and off the customer goes. It's that extra value that you're giving a customer.
1: And that, I guess, on the other spectrum is different to, you know, the bigger customers, the project customers. Maybe they don't want to feel that way because they feel
0: oh, so patronised or something. Absolutely. Yeah. So our, our, our largest customer segment and the persona there is, uh, we call that persona Scott. So we've actually named our personas. So that persona there is actually not looking is not looking for mastery because he, he, he or she, is, their hands are not actually on the tool. They're not actually utilising the tool to do a job. They're project managing a large job. They wanna feel control. So then we look at what are the different parts of the business servicing that kind of persona and very quickly then we can see, okay, well that persona is serviced by a a BD and a sales team, but they're not gonna be speaking to Scott the same way they would be to DIY and telling them this is how you polish a deck. They're going to be saying, how can I give Scott control? OHNS and s and compliance and um, types of value that we can actually add to Scott. So understanding the persona in a nutshell basically means that you can actually imagine the kind of conversation you can have with this person and very clear it becomes to you what kind of value you need to give this person in front of you. Mm.
1: I love also there just reading between that how you guys have been able to get marketing and ops and sales all on the same page because that's when it really works. It's it's not a strap line.
0: It's so necessary. It is so necessary today more than ever. Do the different functional teams need to work together? So you know, I know most recently we launched our e-commerce platform, and I can say um, confidently that ten years ago, had we launched a website, marketing would be working on their own with a web agency or a development team to actually create a website and deliver it, whereas today how people actually consume brands and media and and platform like online platforms. It has been a project that has got has ops involved, our customer support centre involved, our pricing commercial teams are involved, marketing is involved and our operational land is involved because in every way it touches every touch every every consumer touch point.
1: Which I think is a good segue to HR as well because yeah. really you've you know, last couple of years, obviously following your career, um, you've really become a champion of not just not sort of external marketing, but also internal marketing and culture. So, as a marketer, because I remember when you first started getting into this, as a marketer, why have these areas, you know, particularly the internal marketing and the culture, why has it been so important to you?
0: Uh, internal marketing, and particularly culture, and it's actually a term that I've designed and developed over the last few yeah. years myself, and I actually call it brand culture. Um, is very, very close to my heart. And and the, the real reason behind that is organisations can do a great job in defining their brand, their brand strategy, their value proposition and what they want to go out to the marketplace and promise. So after a strong brand strategy session and uh, a brand strategy project, you can potentially, if done well, come out with a very strong value proposition and brand promise. So this is what I am promising as a brand to our customers. But messaging that out to marketplace is one thing. Living up to that is another. If you go out messaging a brand promise to the marketplace and don't deliver on that promise, very quickly, and especially in today's day and age with technology and digital and all of that, very quickly, you can create brand detractors. People that detract from your brand, people that are displeased with your brand and the effect the negative effect of that is so strong because it's not just person a telling person b and it ends there it's utilizing every digital and social platform to actually go out there expressing the dissatisfaction with that brand so a very strong way of alleviating that is then having a very strong brand culture So in an organization, your people live up to the promise that you're pushing out externally. Internally, they're working, they're driven, they're motivated, and they're passionate about your purpose and what you're promising the marketplace. And they're actually then feeling accountable. They own that. They are part of this brand. And they need to make sure that they're living and breathing the promise out there in the marketplace, and all of a sudden, you're feeling like you are protected by an organisation all working towards the exact same messaging that you're going out to the market with.
1: Mm. So quickly, just at a technical, how do you do that? Do you have phone calls with them? Do you workshop? How have you found to get them onto that journey? I
0: think that is then the role of marketing working very closely with HR and very closely with HR to basically say, okay, well, if we're promising the marketplace and our purpose as an organisation is to go out there and I'll use Apple again as an example. If we're going out there and promising innovation and cutting edge, how do we develop a culture of innovation and cutting edge? Your internal culture cannot be different to your external messaging because if you're promising innovation, internally you should be driven by innovation. You should be recruiting for innovation. You should be inspiring internally the ideas and innovation so that it feed, it's basically a clean feed from internally to externally. Your customers experience what your company exudes and your people exude what you inspire them to exude. So at Ken Arts, we say that our external brand promise is helping make the customer's job easier. So internally, our training programs and language we use, what we incentivize on, what we encourage our people is how can you help make the customer's job easier? And no decision internally is made, whether it's operational, strategic, or what have you, mm-hmm. no decision is made without running that truth test over it. If we're starting an initiative, we ask ourselves first and foremost, is that helping make the customer's job easier?
1: And that's your sense
0: check. That's your, absolutely your sense check.
1: Awesome, awesome. Just a couple of career questions left because I love sort of going on a personal note at the end of these interviews. So you've led teams, you've led big teams, you continue to lead teams. What's the biggest mistake you see marketers make today, whether they're young, old? What is the biggest mistakes you find that they're making?
0: For me, it's something that I've learned. And funnily enough, you learn every day. I can't say that I'm an expert because I actually, if if I was to say I was an expert and... Own that in the sense of I'm an expert. I know it all now. I will do myself out of a job tomorrow. So and and I and I tell marketers all over the world this: you never have the opinion of yourself that you're an expert because the minute you do, you will hinder your creativity. You will hinder your appetite to learn. So um, humbly, in my most humblest way, I can say that I I personally think the biggest mistake marketers are doing, and I know I've made this mistake, and I, I continue to learn from these mistakes, is working in silo. So creating teams that then function in silo and not creating strong culture within those teams to actually collaborate. Because the biggest, from my opinion, the biggest thing that brands can do today is collaborate. And it's not necessarily only internally collaborate, but it's externally collaborate too. So that means internal teams are collaborating. And marketers aren't owning the marketing function themselves anymore. They're actually sharing that marketing function. They're bringing in other teams in the organization to say, How can? what ideas do you have that can bring this idea to life? Because that creates engagement, that creates passion and that creates then an army of people that wish to actually help you bring those ideas to life and everybody owns it. And so creating those strong teams that are high performing and that are driven by collaboration I think is one of the best things a brand or a marketing department or a marketing leader can do. But in, in saying that, I think then, co-collaborating with externally with other brands, again, it's, it's, we are in the age of co-collaboration. So partnering with other suppliers and innovators and other organizations to actually bring your ideas to life. No one needs to go out there anymore as a hero. Co-collaboration, I think, will, will bring success to lots of brands. Awesome.
1: Thanks for that, Manil. Final question. Now you're quite young to be head of marketing in, in such a prolific role. What advice would you give to other marketers, be they young or, or wherever they are in their journey, to actually crack that barrier and you know have a similar head of marketing role where they're leading teams and managing people?
0: Yeah. Um, again, humbled. Um, I think. I think for me you know, the advice that I give to a lot of, not only marketers, believe it or not, um, the advice that I give to a lot of people that are starting their career or um, are stuck in that uh, mid-management level that are kind of trying to push their way into that senior management level, be it male, female, you know, it's, it's actually not gender specific. But as marketers, we sometimes get a little bit tunnel visioned to be thinking about the organisation we're working for, or the brands that we're working for, and how we can apply our marketing logic to those brands, and define value proposition, and define um, brand propositions and brand strategy, and then and then all of a sudden we get into execution mode. Um, and and the one thing that I've felt that has helped me, and, and you know, I'm blessed to have great coaches and mentors also. But the one thing that I feel has helped me is to actually utilise the logic and the thinking and everything that I've learned in my career and apply it to myself and what I mean by that is actually focusing on my brand me what is my brand image so looking at basically what do I want to stand for and what do I want people to think of when they think of me and if that is trust and that is credibility and that is expert advice then I then need to think about okay well then the further level down is how do I portray trust, credibility and expert advice? And believe it or not, the way you dress, the way you talk, the way you walk and the networks that you build all add to that brand image. So I think as marketers, if you don't take a step and a moment in time to actually just think, what is the brand image that I want to own and how can I how can I build my own messaging framework almost to position myself in that way, you're doing yourself absolutely a disjustice because in this day and age impressions of everything and people spend time with you and from every conversation or mannerism that you might hold they're forming an opinion so we need to actually just stop for a moment and think about what kind of energy am I pushing out to the world to define what kind of impression are people forming of me and I believe that that really makes a difference in someone's career journey.
1: I love it. I love it. Kind of like your internal VP. I love it, Manil. Manil Murhi, thank you so much for your time. Great advice as always. Keep doing what you're doing because it's very inspiring to watch.
0: Uh, Thank you, maybe. I really appreciate your time also. And I think that this podcast, is I know I tune into them. I think they're brilliant and they teach me something every day. So um, good luck and all the best with the rest of your series.
1: (laughs) Now, I've been aching to do an episode about value proposition, probably for about literally maybe four or five months but I couldn't do it without getting Manel on board. And hopefully you can see why I really had to do so. The idea of building a strong brand and a compelling brand in a time where even content marketing is now a commodity is probably more important than it has ever been. Building a value proposition is all about how you position yourself differently in a marketplace, but in a way that actually means something of value to your consumer. And as Manel so masterfully put it, it's about making your personas and VP, your value proposition, a living and breathing thing in your organization. Something that dictates your training, it drives resources, it drives your hiring, and quite frankly, is the conduit between you and other functional areas, such as HR, sales, and ops, no matter how big or small you may be. At a personal level too, it was a great reminder not to work in silos. Now, I'm not saying that be out of any you know, people on purpose try to work in silos, although that sometimes happens. Teamwork is easy to say, but when you're busy getting, you know, stuff done and you're trying to kick all these goals, it's easy to get tunnel vision. And for brands that truly want to be enduring, emotive forming, it's possible. It is very possible. No matter what industry you're in, B2B, B2C, it's all the same palaver It's very possible. We need to collaborate And collaborate with other brands as well. That was a really good tip that I didn't think that we'd actually go into. This quarter, aim for one co-collaboration, right? One co-collaboration in three months. And the litmus test will be someone or brand who isn't a direct competitor but markets to your persona. They market to the same people you market to and the collaboration could be a product but it could be quite simple it could be a special it could be a deal or it could be something that hubspot does extremely well and they continue to do so well is content collaboration because if you have a brand that has a similar footprint to yours you know obviously you know possibly a little bit bigger not a lot of brands are can say no to good content that actually makes the lives of their personas easier So on that note, I'll say goodbye for another week. And if you've got something that you want to share with Manel, if you have any questions, hit her up. Hit her up on LinkedIn and Twitter, and I'll share those deets in the show notes. So that's Manel Murhi. Have a fantastic week ahead, and I'll join you next time for another episode of Inbound Buzz.